You're listening to the Spooky and Strange Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your horrifying host, Caleb Musgrave. Welcome and happy Halloween. Hello, Dragonfly Nation, and welcome to episode five of our Halloween special. Tonight's episode is very special on many levels. First off, we're dropping this on Saturday, not Sunday, because tomorrow we're putting out the hunting episode, an intro or guide to deer hunting. Tonight's episode we're dropping because it's episode five, the special episode that we're starting each month. We're going to be doing one bonus episode uh, that is patron-inspired. And what we mean by that is each month we have four regular episodes that we lined up, we record, we do our own thing of our own inspiration. But because we have all these amazing supporters on Patreon, we want to make sure that they have a bit of a say. Because really you guys are kind of like our executive producers. You're helping finance this project. And so each month, starting now in October and continuing forever, we are going to have patron-voted episodes. This episode, we gave them the option of four different scary stories that I have written over the years. I am a horror literature nerd, uh, from Edgar Allan Poe to Stephen King to, of course, H.P. Lovecraft. I love horror literature. I love scary literature and scary stories in general, hence the inspiration behind much of our podcast this last month. But I couldn't really decide between the four. And we decided, hey, this is a great opportunity to let our patrons get involved. And so we put up a poll on our Patreon, and all of our patrons voted in. We had 18 people out of 40-something patrons that we have. We're very humble here. We have a small following, but they're a very passionate following, and we love every single one of them. And they, uh, out of the 40-plus people that we have on on our Patreon, 18 of them voted on their favorite of the four scary stories with just a caption and the title of the stories. That's all they had to go by. And they voted very, very well. Out of the four, we're going to be reading two tonight. And they are Amongst the Spruce and Fur and From Darkness. These are two of my more recent scary stories. I think they were written in 2016 and 2017, respectively. And I'll be reading the one first. And I am not good at reading aloud. Please, please be patient with me. I am not good at reading things while talking out loud. Uh, It's part of my ADHD, I think. Or just the fact that I think everybody at one degree or another sucks at it, and I just suck at it very well. So we're going to get into it. The first story, of course, for the night will be Amongst the Spruce and Fur. Perhaps this is my last testament for those that find these remains in journal entries. I am still uncertain what led to this moment. The causes and effects are still unclear to me. But what I do know is it began long before I was born. I've been hunting and trapping all of my life in these woods, which have been in my family for six generations. The people in the village spoke quietly of this forest ever since I could remember. Stories of missing hunters or children disappearing here. My family never thought much of these tales, as nothing had ever happened to any of us. My father chalked it up to superstitions leading back to before my grandfather's time. It is true several men and a few teenagers had gone missing over the years. It is also true that though many search parties scoured through the forests, 
no sign of the missing people ever arose. With so many years between the occurrences, happening sporadically and never with a pattern, we presumed it was simply people who did not know their way around the woods, falling victim to natural calamity. Whispers amongst the villagers spoke of otherworldly sounds and unnatural lights emanating from the trees, shrouded by the darkness of night. But the deer were plentiful, and the muskrats and otters yielded many furs to us. More so, we knew the forest intimately, every hollow and swamp, every ridgetop and valley. Seven hundred or more untold acres were at our disposal, and with the fear of our neighbors as a deterrence, we prospered unharassed. Things changed greatly, however, soon after my father died. A while yet, my mother passed on as well. Cancer took my sire, and the woman who conceived and nurtured me passed at the hands of pneumonia. With only my brother and I left, we worked the land around our old shack the best we could. The boards and timber, once cut from these trees, stood as a testament to our family's fortitude. As time went on, though, the land we planted our crops of beans, corn, and potato began to dry up. With much forethought, my brother decided it was time for him to move to the village, just a day's hike away. He looked for work and eventually moved on to a neighboring town, leaving me to tend to our family's heritage alone. But the beaver and marten were still populous, and the deer and rabbits never decreased. I was, able to, uh, I was able to grow enough food to tide me over each winter, and though it was lonesome, I never was too much for company. I abided in these wood for, winter, uh, for three winters alone, and not once did I miss my family. How I miss their presence now, and even more so with the sounds I hear just beyond the walls of my home. Now my fortress against the evils that await me. My time learning of this patient and stalking peril began last autumn, as the leaves fell and heavy frost lent itself to the grasses and sedges along my trap line. A meager supply of potatoes had been dug up, while even less corn and bean were harvested. I began to set my traps in the old creeks and marshes that surrounded my homestead. Within the murky depths, I set for beaver and otter, mink and muskrat. With deadfalls and steel traps, I eked out a small, growing supply of marten, fisher, and fox pelts from the valleys and hills. I dropped 30 geese with my shotgun, enough to tide me through any winter. With two young fat bucks, I began to fill my smokehouse, ever watchful of the hungry greed of bears and wolverine. Each day the forest grew darker, with heavy fog on the waters and long, chilling shadows stretching across the landscape. I could sense, at a primal level more than sight, sound, or smell, a darkness enveloped the woods of my upbringing. Though I was well supplied for the winter, it was disconcerting to note the lack of deer and other game as the days went on. Far too soon before freezing, the forest seemed to empty of all life. My traps were increasing with inactivity, and though I had some pelts to sell in the springtime, there was definitely not enough to bring me back the humble income I was accustomed to. I began to become anxious, stretching my trap line into other locales within my forest, but nothing changed. It was a week after freeze-up when my smokehouse and food cache were raided. I was out checking traps when it must have happened, as I had secured the food supply just that morning before sunrise. Upon return, I found the geese and venison torn to shreds, much of it eaten greedily as if by some starved beast. I at first assumed it was a bear, or perhaps a wolverine, the scent of the scene leading to such a theory. But from careful examination, I concluded the tracks were of a beast unknown to me. Heels and toes akin to that of a black bear, but much larger and of much strangeness. It left a shudder within my spine. The most fearsome of claw marks were left on the smokehouse door and the posts leading up to my food cache. 
More so, a foul-smelling red ichor coated the remaining meat. Though wolverine were capable of such gluttonous destruction, they were not known to me or others to produce such a disruptive ooze, nor such quizzical tracks. I was now in need of meat to get me through the colder months, and spent more and more time away from the homestead, rifle in hand, searching for any creature to consume. Each day I trekked deeper and longer into the woods, eventually leading, uh, needing to use moon or torchlight to see my way through the forests. As the nights wore on, I would occasionally hear an animal off in the distance, but the sounds it made were none I had ever listened to before. The sound was like that of a grating, uh, the grating of a steel drum with a jagged saw. All the while, a moaning screech echoed all through that grating. The sound, a mixture of machine and beast, seemed to erupt from the trees with the force of a gunshot. More concerning to me was when I would have the occasion to shine my torchlight in the direction of such sounds. I would be greeted by the shine of golden yellow eyes. Though I had seen the, eye, the shine of green and white and even red, no animal had I ever encountered before this winter had eyes that shone brighter than autumn birch leaves. The size of such eyes were as disconcerting. Only a few, con, uh, few occasions more and then I did not hear or see from the animal again. After nearly three weeks of fruitless attempts, I was desperate enough to make a torch and plot to catch a deer with its flame light. I sacrificed my corn supply, making a pile many miles deep in the woods. On a moonless, starless night in a copse of spruce and hemlock, I waited with a torch firmly planted in the now-deepening December snow. A maple pole split and packed with rags and birch bark, all soaked richly in pine tar. I stood in the darkness with match and rifle ready to light at the first sound of an animal feasting on the grain. Nearly four hours later, I felt, more than heard, the approach of some creature. I listened carefully as I began to hear the munching and crunching of dry corn kernels. I struck the match and held it to my makeshift torch. It was in the flame light that everything I knew changed. I'm still unsure of how it all happened. As the pitch and birch sputtered to light, I cannot recall which I saw first, the eye shine or the teeth. I choked back a holler as the torchlight erupted brightly, showing me the creature's entirety. Such an unnatural shape, not made by God or nature, but something far older and more sinister. Sinuous and vulgar, this creature was both avian and mammal, but hellishly neither. Its spine twisted and wound around like nothing I'd ever seen before, with joints that seemed unnecessary and grotesque. The appendages, for I refused to call them limbs, were five in total. Three of the disgusting things propping the beast up, as two with wickedly taloned feet grasped the trunks of the trees nearby, earless and with a face wider than naturally found amongst the beasts of the land and air. Flaps of suckering skin stood out as the only possible nose, billowing in and out like the gills of a fish as this thing breathed. It had no fur or feathers exactly, but a covering of some coarse substance seemed to insulate it from the chill around us. That crimson ichor dripped constantly from its lipless maw, coating its underside and legs with the horrible slime. Jagged, barbed teeth stuck out in a horrible, grimacing smile that never closed as it stared at the flame of my torch with those bright, yellow, owl-like eyes. The height of this being was twice that of any man I've ever heard of, even the ones in the carnival shows as a child. Its length was that of my shack, easily ten paces or more. Every grotesque inch of this thing was inconceivable to my mind, and though I stared at it plainly with the naked eye, 
I could not comp comprehend the sheer magnitude of this horror. I was jarred back to my reality as its eyes left the torchlight and fell upon me. A slavering, thrice-barbed tongue stretched out as it roared at me with that steel-grating bellow I'd heard many weeks before. I wished to say that I raised my rifle and opened fire, but I was too scared. Instead, I turned and ran for my life. My unused rifle slung over my shoulder as I crashed through the forest on my snowshoes. A sickening crunch sound followed behind me as I guessed the thing took up the chase. I pounded through the snow, my heart racing as I panted and just kept running. I heard it screech several more times as I ran towards my homestead. A feeling of exhilarating relief washed over me as I charged through the last stand of trees and into my yard. I ran to the door and slammed through it as quickly as I could. I barricaded the door just as the thing exploded out of the trees. Fir and cedar boughs crashing down around it as I watched quietly from my window. My rifle, a 30 odd six bolt action Winchester, was clutched in my hands. I slowly shouldered it and observed the thing that was slowly causing my mind to crack. I looked from my gun and to the creature and realized that though my rifle may kill a moose, this thing may not be capable of dying at my muzzle flash. Instead of opening fire, I began to push all the furniture and storage boxes and bins against the walls. I prepared to fight the monster within close range, filling jars with a mix of kerosene and lamp oil. I wrapped these in torch rags, already saturated in pine tar. My rifle would be my spear in these jars of conflagration, my artillery. I shook in fear as I heard the thing gibber and shriek outside. Once and only once did it, struck, did it strike the shack's wall, and I heard the splintering buckle of pine and spruce timber un under such massive force. Soon after, it shambled into the forest on its unnatural gate. The shrieks continued off into the night, and by sunrise the forest was quiet. At first I began to run to the village, but even now I know better. The thing waits for me out in the forest. It knows of my plan, and it will wait. It, w it may wait until I run, or it may wait until I am exhausted by hunger, but it is patient. It has waited since the last missing hunter to taste the flesh of man. And I too shall wait, until either help arrives or my death comes upon me. The only truth I know at all now is that it calls out every night near the tree line, and I know what it is calling for, for I hear the others calling back. And that was Amongst the Spruce and Furs. I wrote that back in 2015, uh, inspired by a really weird sound I heard when I was on the trap line one night. Uh, I was running my trap line real late, took the ATV back, and then put on my snowshoes and started walking in. And I just heard this god-awful shrieking metallic sound that I still to this day have no idea what it was. And it spooked me. It just spooked me. And I had these like ideas in my head of what I could possibly see if I turned my flashlight on or turned on the headlamp uh, or turned on the headlights of my ATV. I was so uncomfortable the rest of that night. I was very happy to find very little work to have to be done on the trap line so I could jump jump back on the bike and run home. Um, yeah, that was one of my more personal stories that I wrote, inspired by one of my own uh, moments in the woods where I got spooked. This next story is called From Darkness, and it was actually inspired by one of our patrons, uh, Renee Nolting. She... Uh, is a longtime friend of mine. I think I've known her since like 2008. Uh, I look at her like my big sister. I love her to death. And she has a very 
dark, twisted sense of humor that jives with my dark, twist, uh, twisted sense of humor. And when she found out that I was writing a lot of horror stories, she was like, can you kill me in one of them? Could you, like, put me into one of your stories and preferably have me killed? I was like, all right. And that's where From Darkness comes from, which is the very next story. It has been spreading throughout the town, and I'm not sure how far this has gone. Maybe the whole county, maybe the state. It could be nationwide for all I know. Ever since society's method of communication began to fail with the storms, I don't think anyone really knows what is going on in this world. What I do know is this thing, be it a disease or a plague from God, is here. I will not speak in criticism for the failure of our government to put everything back in order. Since the cyclopean mass arose from beneath the ocean floor several thousand miles west of Chile, chaos has been growing. I do not expect any government body to have the capabilities to enforce order and control when such madness spreads freely and unchecked. As it rose from the darkness of the ocean floor, insanity spilled forth like a tsunami. It was a wonder we had anything of a government left after the initial fallout. Now, months later, I do not even question where the National Guard is to quell the riots, where the fire department is to quench the fires, where the police are to quiet the laughter from the darkness. Soon after it erupted from beneath the waves and our world began to darken, John Ithaqua and his damned cult spread out from the north woods, preaching about things of such maddened imagination. He promised a return of older things that made even the sects of Nilarthotep seem young. He showed his followers glimpses into things unseen and unbelievable by any sane individual, corrupting innocent souls with his promise of redemption through the flesh. Soon after the cult arrived here in my small city, the teachings of Ithaqua began to be whispered here and there. Promises of safety from the madness, outlandish claims of immortality. All that you had to do was dine with them, feast on the flesh, as the acolytes of Ithaqua proclaimed at their rallies. Heal our nation and feast on the flesh. Such blasphemous monsters. Myself and others like me shunned them, but watching in horror as their numbers steadily grew. As the madness from its emergence from the ocean took hold, death rates rose higher and higher, yet the cult grew stronger, and the laughter from the darkness grew louder each night. As the months droned on, we began to see symptoms amongst the cultists. I spoke to a neighbor who worked in the medical field. She supposed the theory that perhaps it was a form of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, similar to the victims of Kuru disease in Papua New Guinea. But even she was baffled by the widespread of such symptoms. They would shake and gibber like the ghouls that guarded the secrets of Kadath. They could not walk with a balance, much like a distempered dog. Instead, they loped and bound, bounded like a deformed hobgoblin. The gibbering would rise to cataclysmic rhythm at the darkening of sunset, and the laughter from the darkness responded. Nearly a year after the arrival of the cultists and their horrific mesmerism, their victims no longer even appeared human. Skin disrupted with ulcers that oozed vile fluids of foul odor and colors. Eyes sunken and withdrawn into the cranium to the point of being almost non-existent. Bony but muscular, yet skittish and subordinate in nature. The flesh of their muzzle, for I could not call it a mouth any longer, had drawn back, tattered lips, constantly grinning or grimacing perhaps. They no longer spoke with any human, nor natural tongue, but gibbered constantly, laughing almost, 
They seemed to shun the brightest part of the day and would only emerge as the afternoon sun cooled into evening. Then they would skitter out of the dark places they sheltered in to seek sustenance. I never saw them kill anyone, yet there was always a body for them to feast upon. Just the other day I stumbled upon a half dozen of them gorging themselves on the lifeless carcass of my neighbor, her hair matted in blood and her grey-blue eyes faded and dull. Yet when I came into view they scattered fearful. Finally, after a year and a half, I caught a glimpse of some of those who laughed from the darkness. The masters of these ghoulish fools that were once human. The ones who feed their corrupted pets on the flesh of my neighbors and friends. How many there are I may never know, but on this one evening I witnessed four step out of the dark woods that border my neighborhood. They crept out almost happily, giggling and beckoning to one another to survey the scenery. Whether this was a regular occurrence or not, I have not the faintest idea. They strolled down the street, two of them dragging a corpse, more fodder for their gibbering beasts. Their hair was matted but curly, their eyes and mouth painted with gro grotesque macabre decoration of circus performers. Their clothes, though messed with dirt and blood, were of old-fashioned style with billowy ruffled tops and collars, and large red leather shoes. Clowns. Dressed as if to entertain the masses as they dropped the naked dead body to the street, they laughed louder, and soon the gibbering began. Out from ramshackle dwellings, from beneath cars and other hidden haunts, the ghoulish creatures swept out of the shadows to tear into the corpse with gusto. I stared in horrified silence, watching the scene. I only started from my door when something of the image changed. The clowns were looking at me, and out from the darkness came the laughter. <laughs> Yeah, clowns. So that was actually written back in 2016 during the creepy clown uh, pandemic, for lack of a better term, that seemed to be happening all over North America and Europe, where people were spotting creepy killer clowns in the woods and along the sides of roads and just outside their windows. And this phenomenon that was going on all the while, like, I was trying to figure out a way to tell a story that was very um, Lovecraft mythos-influenced. So I mentioned Nilarthotep, Kedath, uh, and, of course, the Cyclopean mass rising from the water west of Chile. Uh, clearly, that's Rilie, the, the domain of Cthulhu. And so this was kind of like my own little uh, nod at one of my biggest inspirations for my kind of writing of horror, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who we've talked about in the previous episode, uh, The Monster Mash. But also kind of trying to pull in some influence of, uh, of at the time, current events of this whole weird clown, creepy clown phenomena. And, uh, yeah. It's a short story, which kind of surprised me when I was reading it out loud, how fast that story was told. And I was trying to draw it out. So even though we were only going to do two uh, stories originally on this episode, looking at how short this podcast episode really is, I figured we might as well throw you a bonus. And that one is probably one of my favorite slow burn horror stories that I've ever written uh, called Cold, inspired by my friend Chris Kong. It all began the spring before my wife disappeared. Perhaps in hindsight it began when she moved here. She wanted to stay, she said so on many occasions, 
She loved me devoutly, and I her. But the house and the surrounding acreage never sat well with her. Anna Marie could never feel warm here, her from the city and myself from the country. Our lifestyles were both very different, but our love was strong. We met in college when I felt the need to expand my education beyond the practical skills my father and uncles taught me. She was truly breathtaking, with her bright green eyes and a streak of blonde hair in her otherwise brunette mane. Soon after graduating, we were married, and she, without much to hold her to an urban life, came to join me on my family's property. With my father in a home and my mother long buried, we had just ourselves and two old hounds to tend to. <clears throat> the old farmhouse was admittedly draftier than the townhouses back in the city, mostly due to age, but the fireplace was vast and burned well with oak and maple. More so, it was spring coming on to summer, so the temperature was ever rising. I felt that she just had to get accustomed to the climate, yet with ever-growing insistence she begged for more heat and claimed that the chill was deep. Though I was trying my best to write a novel which had been on my mind throughout my college days, I was kept busy cutting wood and stoking the fireplace. One evening, as I worked away on the manuscript, Anna Marie woke with a start, crying out so loud that it startled both of the hounds from their slumber into a baying fit. I ran to her side as she shook and wept. I begged her to calm and asking to describe for me what happened to her. She just sat there in my arms and cried quietly, staring off into the darkness of the room. No matter how much I pleaded, she would not describe whatever nightmare she had. And so after some time, I left to be, and eventually she drifted back to sleep. The next morning, as I brewed coffee, she came down from the loft and curled up by the large chair by the fireplace, wrapped in a thick woolen blanket. The dogs left their spot by the coals, preferring the doorway as she waited for breakfast. I brought her a mug of black drink and asked her if she felt better after the nightmare. She stared at me confused for a minute or more, before taking a slow slip of coffee and stating that she recalled no nightmare. I told her about the startled wake-up, and she stared at me with growing bewilderment. I shrugged it off, explaining it away as simply a night terror with, within unconsciousness. It was not uncommon for someone to not remember a frightful dream, so I was not concerned. Now I realize that this must have been the first symptoms of a growing horror. Over the next few months, I would happen every, it would happen every few days sporadically. Anna Marie, uh, Anna Marie would awaken, screaming with utmost terror shaking as if every ounce of her body wished wished to run away. I would run to her side and do my best to calm her, holding her close to my chest while I petted her hair and made soothing sounds. Each following morning, she would come down to sit by the fireplace as the dogs moved far away from her. And each morning, I would ask her to tell me what scared her the night before with no avail. More so, she also forgot the morning conversations, as no matter how many times I reminded her of them, she would again stare bewildered, claiming no memory of these talks. Just as disconcerting was her need for a hot fire for several days after each night terror. By midsummer, I had exhausted all of her supply of seasoned oak and maple. It was having to fell, bur uh, fell and burn live ash wood. The wood we had stacked prior was usually enough to last two whole winters. As the summer heat drew away, Anna Marie began to fear the oncoming cold arguing that we would not survive the winter out here in such a cold, forsaken space. I retorted that this home had kept me vibrant and warm my entire life without ever needing more than six cords of wood in a year. Each passing day, more and more wood had to be cut, split, and stacked as we burned through cord after cord of firewood. By early September, I had begun to notice a peculiar relationship between Anna Marie and a local bird. 
Each day as I split wood, I would stack it around the walls of the farmhouse, hoping to cut down on the drafts. One morning, I saw Anna Marie step outside with a blanket wrapped around her body and a pair of mittens on as a raven landed in a nearby spruce tree. I left this dead tree alone as it was already partially rotted and would provide a little more than smoke. As she sipped her coffee, the raven stared at her intently for a long while before cawing wildly, bobbing its head to and fro until she looked up. At this moment, the raven stopped and looked back to her. A message seemed to transfer between the two as I watched. Only when I cleared my throat did they break their eye contact, and both the raven and Anna Marie shuffled off to their own daily activities. Soon after, Rufus, our oldest hound, disappeared without a trace. By early October, the occasional visit by the raven had become a daily ritual. My own ritual of cutting firewood had taken me further from the home each day dragging the logs back with my truck to saw up, split, and stack. Even so, I never missed the sighting of the raven with Anna Marie. I slowly begun to despise the blasted Corvid. I envied that she seemed to stare at him with a longing I had never felt from her. I loathed that he seemed to be able to keep her from brooding on her incessant claims of being cold and her amnesiac responses to her nightmares. I was starting to feel like I had finally slipped into a maddened alternate reality of what was sane. With each passing day, the raven would stay longer and get bolder. It no longer longer flew away when it saw me, and even with my shouting at it and throwing of sticks, it would simply fly to a higher perch out of my reach. I responded by cutting down every tree within a hundred yards of our house, chopping them up into small kindling. Simon, our youngest of the two hounds, disappeared shortly after. One evening, Anna Marie awoke, shrieking louder than ever before. I ignored her screams, instead focusing my energy on the sharpening of my axe. She screamed for much longer than I thought possible, sure that she would have ran out of air with how long the shriek lasted. After a moment of silence, I set the axe down, went up to the loft, and looked to our bed. She was sitting there, staring at me, and smiling. I turned and walked briskly back down to the main room and continued sharpening the axe, though making sure to face the stairs at all times. The next night, the screams happened again, and this time I shouted, Shut up! Shut up, you crazy bitch! To to which there was a pause, and then giggling. I shuddered and shook my head, then shuddered harder, when from the midnight woods I heard the raven croak back to her as if in response. I went out further from the house the next morning, not even bothering to make breakfast or coffee. I cut for the whole day, finding a beetle-killed oak and two storm-killed maples. I bucked the wood where it fell, splitting and stacking it into the truck in a small trailer. I returned just before dark to find Anna Marie working on something in the corner of the main room near the fireplace. I ignored her presence, growing to resent her as I looked for something to eat. After a while, I could hear that she was humming softly, some light, lilting tone. I looked towards her and saw her arms busily working. I stepped closer and saw that she was moving the wings of the raven up and down on its body. I gasped in surprise as she turned back to me and smiled, the severed head of the raven between her teeth. I sat by the fire that night as she sang softly up in the loft, and rather rather than sharpening my axe, I sat with the old shotgun in my lap. Sometime in the early dawn, I drifted to sleep, and though I awoke with a start, I noticed that I did not hear her singing nor sleeping. The creaking front door gave me pause, but I quickly checked the loft. She was gone. I scanned the surrounding tree line, but could not find any sign of where she went to. I dressed and searched for her for many hours. 
An hour before dark, I returned home and drove out to my neighbor, telling him of my fear that she had hurt herself out in the woods. He called a few other neighbors, and we put a search together by the next morning. We searched until early, uh, nearly exhausted by noon, and upon returning to my homestead, the neighbor decided it was wise to call the police. After a long, thorough discussion explaining my fear of her mental health, the police aided in our search, but to no avail. There was a murmuring of suspicion that I may have hurt her. But after finding no evidence after the week, the police and others left me be, with the theory that being that she had drowned out in a deep, hard-to-navigate swamp. I kept to the house, even buying a new hound from my neighbor, whom I named Thompson. I kept wondering if she would return, and though I had panic dreams of her taunting me, I never did see her. However, I continued to sleep with a shotgun loaded beside my bed. After several more weeks, autumn was finally fully upon my acreage. I felt the bite colder than it seemed possible and continued to busy myself with the cutting of firewood. Thompson would shy from me on these especially cold days. Such peculiarities are common in the breed. It was only when I heard the corks and caws of a deep-throated raven that things began to feel oddly familiar. I stepped out onto the porch, wrapped in a blanket as I gazed towards the roof of my truck, where perched a raven, staring at me intently as I noticed three things. First, that its eyes had an almost ethereal green hue to them. Next, that it had a light streak of white across its scalp. And finally, it seemed to be able to smile. <laughs> so, there's some history behind that story. That's one of my older ones from, I think, 2014, uh, 2015 era. And it was inspired by, by my friend Chris Kong, who had had a, a nightmare or a dream that he was going to have to really work hard to cut enough firewood to keep him and his wife warm for the winter. And it just kind of inspired that story. And you can also kind of pick up some other little things in there. There was a little bit of inspiration from uh, Color from uh, Color from Out of Space, uh, with the whole farm slowly going weirder and weirder. There's a little bit of the Taily Post story with the dogs disappearing. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe with the whole raven coming into it as well and being almost like an omen of something. But uh, it was one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, to write. And that's the first time I ever read it out loud. It was very challenging to read that one because there's a lot of big words. Like a lot of these I use very large fancy words that you haven't heard since like the Victorian or Edwardian kind of writing era uh, other than Lovecraft. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty fun one to read. Even though that wasn't part of the patrons' deci decisions, it was one of the options for them to choose. They just didn't choose that one. It wasn't the top two. But uh, I figured we might as well add that in to make this episode last at least, you know, we're only at about half an hour, to be frank. We're, we're just getting a little over half an hour. So... This is a very short episode. It's a bonus episode for Halloween, so it could be a little shorter tonight. It doesn't have to be as long as our usual episodes, especially because tomorrow night's episode is nearly three hours long. So, yeah, enjoy this one. I hope you enjoyed it. Cold was the last story of the night. And with that, we come to the end of our five-part Halloween special. I want to thank every single one of our listeners for tuning in over this last month this has been very very fun to work on over the last two and a half months in total uh getting this all organized getting this all put together i think uh we're gonna be doing this more often or not more often uh i think we're gonna be doing this again next year is what i'm trying to get at i really enjoyed doing this halloween special 
Uh, and I know that from the analytics that we're getting on our end, you all seem to enjoy it as well. Our numbers jump very rapidly on views or listens for these episodes specifically compared to others. So that tells me that we were on the right path, uh, that we got the right kind of content for you to want to listen into. Uh, I want to thank every single one of you for tuning in. It really um, lightens my heart when I see how many people are tuning in, how many people are responding to it, how many people have really enjoyed this series, how many messages I get. We get private messages. We get emails to the uh, to Canadian Bushcraft Podcast at gmail.com where all of you are welcome to email us and ask questions, uh, request content, all that kind of stuff. But I especially want to thank our patrons from Patreon, people like Flint Chandler, Pierre Blinn, Alexandra Sumner, Renee Nolting. Uh, these people and more helped us make this specific episode happen, but also all the other episodes happen by keeping the lights on here in the bunker, in the dungeon. Sorry, we're still in Halloween time. Uh, in the dungeon. So I want to thank all of you and all, especially you patrons who have contributed to keep this moving, but also voted on this episode. Remember, if you want to have a say on what happens on the Canadian Bushcraft podcast once a month, we do a fifth special episode that only patrons get to decide on what that episode will be. Uh, it's really exciting how this all works. We're coming together real fast. Uh, each episode is really special to us, and this has been, again, phenomenal. I have to thank, I have to thank all the people that have helped out with this episode and the other episodes of this special. Uh, Winston Boudreau, of course, with the music, Nikki Satira and Emily Carell for research and study, Ryan, Ryan the Adventure Guy for his research and study, but also being co-host, as well as Emily and Nikki for being co-hosts. And of course, our one special guest, Brian Jordan, Professor Brian Jordan from Durham College on the previous episode, The Monster Mash, episode four. I want to thank all of them uh, from the bottom of my heart for tuning in and assisting on this and jumping in there on the graphics for our promotional stuff, uh, the music, the research on the subject matters, making sure that we're as truthful and as accurate as we can with all of our information. I want to thank all of them from the bottom of my heart, from the cockles of my heart, and all the other severed parts of bodies that I have in the jars down here in the dungeon. Uh, I thank you from all of those organs and more. Thank you to all of you, and I'm going to end this with another special song from our composer, Winston Boudreaux. Enjoy, and of course, since tonight's the night, happy Halloween. <laughs>